Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. Hi everyone, welcome to this episode of the Motherkind podcast. I hope you're all really well this week. My guest today is internationally acclaimed meditation teacher, speaker and author Light Watkins. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a really long time, having followed Light's work for a while now. And I hope you'll agree with me, he has an incredibly calming, grounded energy, which I hope in turn helps you feel those things as you listen. Light explains how he committed to sending out a daily dose of inspiration, a daily email, which was a story or an anecdote or a learning to his email list back in 2016. Some of those emails have now come together in Light's latest book called Knowing Where to Look, 108 Daily Doses of Inspiration. We talk about the power of consistency and what it took in order to send out a daily email like that and how it's possible to find inspiration everywhere you look. Light shares how We can all find inspiration that is all around us just by training ourselves to look for it. I know that's something I talk about a lot, that what we focus on gets bigger. So this isn't about ignoring those more challenging feelings or the hard stuff at all. We have to process that. But also we can hold the duality of allowing ourselves to focus on what's good as well. So I hope that you really enjoy this episode. I really loved chatting to Light and I cannot wait to hear what you think of it. Here it is. So Light, thank you for being here. I mean, I'm excited for every podcast, I have to be honest, but I am really excited for this conversation. And, you know, like so much, it feels like the perfect conversation at the perfect time for me personally. So I'm excited about that as well. So welcome. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be here and I'm excited about having this conversation with you. You know, I've been researching you and I read your new book, which I absolutely loved. And there's so many places that we could start. But I thought I would start with meditation because I think if people know of you, that might be how they know First of you. Thing, because, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I thought it might be interesting to start there and then spring out into I definitely want to talk about inspiration and inner voice those are things that I absolutely want to dive into which of course is so linked to meditation and something that I love about you as a meditation teacher is that you bring such an accessibility to it tell me about that when did you start to realize that meditation doesn't need to be this kind of straight back cross-legged practice that you can bring an ease to it and get the same benefits Well, when I first started dabbling in meditation in the mid-90s, or I should say late 90s, I was living in New York. I was getting familiar with yoga, and I kept getting invited to these meditation circles with my yoga teachers. And while the idea of meditating was always appealing to me, 
the whole esoteric aspect of the inner world, the exploration of the inner self, becoming self-realized and tasting samadhi and nirvana and bliss consciousness and all those wonderful things, I never felt like I was having a tangible experience. So I'm a natural skeptic. So I started wondering, well, what is it? Is it real or is it just some BS that everyone's sort of pretending kind of like the emperor's new clothes? So that became my mission over the next few years to experiment with as many different styles of meditation as possible until I could hopefully find something that worked. And then just before I came to a conclusion that, okay, meditation is just hard. I met my Vedic meditation teacher in Los Angeles. And that's when everything changed because he basically was the one who told me you don't have to sit on the floor with your legs crossed, which is how I've been doing it up until that point. It was kind of like, you know, I don't even that diagram. It's like a motivational speaker diagram where they have a guy in a little cave. He's like tunneling with this pick, this ax. He's tunneling through and he's gone through this whole maze of tunneling, but he hasn't found anything. And then there's like an inch between where he stops and this whole trove of diamonds. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I just, you know, I can't do this anymore. This is exhausting. <laughs> I almost stopped right at that point. And meeting this person opened me up to this whole world, which was in the meditate. It was like the meditation version of a trove of diamonds where I just was like in, I was blissed out. It was like, a, it was better than any drug and it was all gain and no pain. So that was 2003 and I've been hooked on it ever since. What do you wish more people knew about meditation? Mm, that's a good question. I wish people knew that it wasn't about quieting their mind, that the mind, just like how the heart beats and you know you breathe without thinking about it, your mind naturally experiences impulses of energy and information, which we call thoughts. And trying to stop that process from happening in meditation is kind of like trying to stop breathing or trying to stop your heart beating. It's just not possible. But when you are in certain states of consciousness, such as when you're sleeping, your heart will naturally start to beat less and your breathing rate will naturally start to slow down. And so meditation can induce a meditative state of consciousness where your thoughts will naturally slow down. They don't have to slow down a lot for you to not notice that you're not really thinking very much, just a little bit, just a little bit more than what you experience at the surface level of awareness. And so that's the whole, I would say, trick with meditation is to position yourself in such a way that your mind can naturally begin to slow down without you getting in its way too much. So that's all I teach people how to do at the end of the day, through my classes, through my books, through my videos, all that. It's incredible, isn't it? Because what I notice with meditation for me is that I bring to that practice, obviously, what I bring to other parts of my life, which is wanting to do it right and feeling that I might be doing it wrong and wishing that it were different. And it's so fascinating to me because I learn so much about myself from just how I approach that tool. It's like, wow, why do I expect that it should be any other way than it is? What if I just accepted that today? My mind's really busy. 
I learned so much about myself. I don't know your thoughts on this, but I learned so much about myself by just how I am with it as well as doing it. Honestly, at the end of the day, meditation is just another habit. So the way we approach that habit is probably going to be very similar to the way we approach other habits, learning how to drive, learning how to clean properly. We expect things to happen a lot faster than they actually happen. And I think we have an underappreciation for process and we overestimate outcome. Like the outcome needs to look like this, needs to happen in this amount of time. So naturally we project that onto our meditation endeavor and it ends up creating more frustration than what would be there otherwise if we just approached it like a thousand step process. And I'm on step one today. And between step one and step 1000, there are going to be some incremental progress. And there's going to seem like I'm taking three steps back here, but I'm really taking one step back to take five steps forward and you know that kind of thing. I just wrote this thing today that I sent out about establishing habits. What we typically do is we plan for the best case scenario. We will dive into a habit and plan for everyone to support us and for us to have all the time in the world to do it and for us to always be motivated and inspired. And instead, we want to have contingencies in place. We want to plan for the rainy day, the bad mood. I'm not feeling very positive today. No one gets what I'm doing and why I'm doing it progress is slow, (laughs) or maybe I can't detect any progress at all. Like if we can plan for those contingencies, then we'll be able to stick in it long enough to have the more tangible gauge of progress. Yeah, I love that. And I think something that I've noticed with habits, particularly in my meditation practice, actually, but with other habits, is this skill of allowing myself to fail and then not taking that as an opportunity to give up. Mm-hmm. allowing myself to miss a day mm-hmm. and not kind of throw my arms up and go, oh, well, that's that. I'm just going to, you know, pack that in and think, okay, I can start again tomorrow. And I wanted to talk to you about this because I think something, if I'm honest, that I struggle with still is consistency. Yes. And what I see in you is someone who's pretty much mastered consistency, certainly in your daily practice and in your daily emails. And I'm wondering Mm -hmm. how you would help someone like me (laughs) who struggles (laughs) with consistency. Like I struggle with it. Like I say to myself, you know, I want you to meditate every day. And I kind of do that for three months and I'm off the bandwagon and I'm back on. And the podcast I have done consistently week in, week out for three years. So I need to not be too hard on myself. You never missed a week in three years? Mm -mm. That's pretty remarkable. So that's what I would say. I would say to find an area of your life where you have been consistent. Like if you're a mother, for instance, which a lot of your listeners are. Yeah, pretty much everyone. You have consistently made sure your child has something to eat every day. (laughs) Right? That's consistency. So you know you can do it. You know you can be consistent. And the reason why you probably were able to be more consistent with that versus your own habits is because it was bigger than you. You made it bigger than you. Just by the nature of having a child, it's become bigger than you. So then that's one of the keys to consistencies with our habits is we have to make it bigger than us. So if it's about meditating for me, then yeah, I'm probably not going to be as consistent. But if I'm meditating because I'm a better parent, 
or I'm a better wife. I'm a better version of myself in the world. And if we have that as our motivation, then that will increase the chances of us being more consistent. And the other thing I would say is it's totally fine to give yourself a break and all that, like, you know, take a day off. But I do feel like there needs to be a concentrated amount of time where you don't do that. And the reason why is because it forces you to have to find a way out of no way. And if you do that a dozen times, you'll start to break down that wall of resistance around an excuse that you could easily use. And it sounds very important, (laughs) you know, so no one's going to push back if you say, oh, I couldn't do it today because of dot, dot, dot. But if you can find a way within that, then it opens up your potential to do that again and again, and then being a little bit uncomfortable and prone to use an excuse in the situation may not stop you in the future from following through on your, whatever the habit is that you want to do. Remember, this is not something anyone's forcing you to do. This is what you have decided for yourself that this will improve my life if I can do this. So if you got through three months of meditation, that is actually quite remarkable. You're in the top two percentile of all meditators. If you can go three months without missing a day, but now see if you can go four months. And then after four months, take some time off if you want, and then go five months. And just keep doing it in chunks of time like that, where you're, you're taking the idea of not doing it off the table. Like there's not an option and you just have to find a way, even if it's shortening the time a little bit or doing it in the middle of the night, two in the morning, whatever it is. But every time you do that, you're going to learn how to organize your time or your schedule or your finances or your resources or whatever better the next time. So you don't have to go through that period of exhaustion or whatever you experience in following through on your commitment. And it reminds me what you spoke about right at the start of this conversation, actually, is that from that breakthrough is right at the point where we kind of you give up. You want to give up. You sent out this daily email and you sent it out for five years, but you made this commitment to yourself and then you got to the end of week three and you ran out of things to say, right? And at that point, a lot of people would have given up tell us what you did differently and what the insight was. Okay. So just to put that into context, I started writing these daily doses of inspiration in 2016, June of 2016. And remember, I've been dabbling in meditation in the late nineties. And then I became consistent in 2003. So for 13 years, I've been meditating like clockwork up until writing the daily dose. So The story I told was the reason why I postponed and getting started with this this new commitment of writing these daily emails and sending them out at 6 a.m. Pacific time was because I was afraid I was going to run out of stories. And it was all just inspirational, short stories that I could write in an email and send out every day. And sure enough, after three weeks, I ran out of content and I found myself sitting around midnight on my couch in my apartment in Santa Monica. And I was like, what am I going to write for tomorrow? What am I going to write? I have nothing to write. I'm like pulling my hair out. I don't already, I don't, I'm bald. So, (laughs) but I just closed my eyes. And as any long-term meditator will tell you, if you sit down, doesn't matter what time of day, 
doesn't matter if you're in the airport or wherever you are, you close your eyes, you will start to drift into this sort of meditative state because that's what you've essentially trained yourself to do. And then these ideas just started coming through me. And I opened my eyes 10 minutes later and I was like, I had an idea and I started writing it down. And this is not something I invented or created or anything like that. You know, Elizabeth Gilbert talks a lot about the idea of the muse feeding you creativity. One of my other mentors, Stephen Pressfield, who wrote The War of Art, talks about that as well. And you have to facilitate that relationship with your muse by showing up consistently. So it's almost like you're earning the privilege of receiving the creativity by showing up consistently. So that was my experience. I started dictating almost what I was hearing. I don't remember the subject of that particular one, but that became the basis of probably, I would say, 80% of the emails I sent out after that point. And we're talking five years worth of emails were channeled, almost channeled. Two things happened. I stopped taking authorship of the message, right? This is not really my message. This is a message that's coming through me. And number two, I stopped putting all the pressure on myself to have an idea when I sat down to write. Because before that, I would go the whole day obsessing over what am I going to write? What am I going to write? What am I going to write? And then I just started trusting that because I'm making the time, because I'm showing up, because I'm not taking days off, then I'm going to be gifted the inspiration. So in other words, inspiration generates inspiration, creativity generates creativity, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's so much in that because it's so easy. You know, a lot of people listening to this might not relate to having to sit down and write a daily email or create content, but so many people are looking for inspiration in their lives. They might be in jobs they don't like or just looking to feel like a more inspired, vital, that aliveness. I think most people want that, particularly in the mums that I speak to. You know, my community is all for mothers, you know, day and day out and speaking to mothers who feel the opposite of that on this kind of treadmill of up, school run, lunch, dinner, bedtime, up, dinner. How does someone find that inspiration? What does inspiration even mean to you in your life today? I think motherhood is the ultimate inspiration (laughs) to serve because at the end of the day, we're all here to serve. When people talk about finding their path or purpose and all that, it's service oriented. There's no one's path that is primarily about just hoarding money for themselves or resources for themselves. It's always about service. So you can have all the money in the world, but you won't feel like you're truly, truly living your purpose unless you're doing what Warren Buffett has done, which is giving it all away or donating it to charities like Bill and Melinda Gates or using it for some purpose like Elon Musk. And we're going to figure out how to get man onto Mars in case we destroy Earth. There's always some bigger purpose. And so motherhood is sort of the ultimate path of service because it's mostly a thankless job (laughs) and you're on call 24 hours a day. And so I think a lot of times a mother will place extra pressure on herself to do something more than just being a mother. And the reality is being a mother is everything that can be everything. And I'm not pandering. You know, you may not be the next Gandhi or Mother Teresa or whoever, but you could be rearing that next person. And so every interaction you have with them, everything you teach your child, there's no throwaway moments here. 
So that's a very, very important position in humanity is to be someone's mother. And if that's all you end up doing your entire life, that is also remarkable. You know, become the best mother that you can be. (laughs) And if you have other internal guidance leading you to somewhere else, you know, explore that. But anything you do, you're going to take with you the qualities of motherhood into that endeavor. And that's what's going to make you uniquely, or I should say world-class at it. You have a unique qualification as a mother because you have a level of empathy that people who aren't mothers will never be able to understand. There's a level of intuition between you and your child that other people who aren't mothers will never be able to understand. And there's a depth of love that other people will never be able to understand. And you can bring that empathy and that intuition and that love into any normal, mundane endeavor, and you can make it amazing. You can change it. You can shift it. You can grow it in ways that someone who is not a mother will never be able to do. And that's pretty powerful stuff. But it starts with just being a really the most present mother you can. That's what's missing when people are bad mothers versus good mothers is the bad ones aren't present and the good ones are. And when you're present, you get access to the richest information of how to relate to my child or my children in this moment, because it may not be the same as what you did in the last moment. And that's where meditation and inner work comes in very handy because it makes you present. Mothers are also notorious for worrying and that worrying energy does not help you be more present. It actually yanks you out of your present moment awareness. So meditation can help to dissolve some of that so that you can get back to your most natural state of presence, empathy, and intuition. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. And therapy is a space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Therapy is just an incredible, safe non-judgmental space. I absolutely love it. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule, which I think as busy mums is what we all need. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash motherkind today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash motherkind. I'm so glad you brought up that word presence because I think it's easy to say and it's very hard to do. You know, and I think even though you said, you know, bad mothers aren't present, I don't agree with that. I mean, I don't think there's such a thing as a bad mother. I think there's every mother just trying her best. And I think even those mothers who may struggle to be present a lot, they will absolutely have moments when they're present, you know, and a child hurts themselves. It's like a tunnel of pure presence, just maybe for that micro moment you know and then you might be off and your mind might be scattered again but I wanted to talk to you about the kind of internal voices because I know I experienced this you know I'm a meditator I do this work you know I've done a lot of unpacking on myself and still you know I'll be with my girls and I'll hear these little whispers sure but also I hear a critic I hear a kind of constant narrative and you talk brilliantly about unpacking these voices in our heads. And Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could talk to that. You talked about that worrying voice. 
how do I identify that versus an intuitive voice? You know, for example, if my girl's on the climbing something too high, I'll have this voice, which is like, she's going to fall off and smash her head open. Now I kind of know that's not my intuition. Sometimes though it can be, and I'll jump in and sometimes it's fear. It's such a skill. And I still, you know, I find it so hard, especially when I'm responsible for other humans. You know, the stakes are quite high. Mm. How do we do that? How do we differentiate between all these different voices? Sorry, very long-winded question. No, that's a very important question is how do I distinguish between the voice of intuition and the voice of fear? And the one distinction that I make is fear, which is, you know, worry is a part of fear. Fear is prohibitive, telling you what not to do, right? And then intuition is instructive or affirming. It's telling you what to do, where to go, what to try. The thing is, there's no isolation happening where you're only hearing one or you're hearing the other. The fear is there. It's not going away. And the intuition is there. And the biggest problem that most people have is they can't hear their intuitive voice. All they hear is the fear voice. So what we want to do is we want to somehow turn the volume up on the intuitive voice. And if we can hear the intuitive voice as clearly as we hear the fear voice, then that will give us a little bit more assurance in whatever we're doing that could be aspects of it could be concerning. And it could also instruct us on the safest way to do whatever it is that we're doing. Because there could be a method of doing that thing with your kids that's safer than the method that's currently being employed. And so our intuitive voice may lead us to that. And it may not be something we can necessarily see with our eyes, but the intuitive voice may say, ask that person standing over there if they know of a better way to do this. Whereas if you don't hear the intuition or if the fear is so loud, fear might say, well, no, they're busy. I'm not going to bother them. I'm going to look weird, blah, blah, blah. So the intuitive voice, if it's louder than the fear voice for that moment in time, then that can be enough to get you to move towards some sort of progressive action. And that's really what, again, the meditation is very, very world-class at doing is in turning up the volume on what they call the still small voice and making it this loud, annoying voice that you can't ignore. And that's where you want it to be. You want it to be so loud that you can't ignore it any longer. And to get from where we are today to that point, it's going to take a lot of dedication to a practice. It's going to take a lot of split testing, listening to these different voices and seeing which one feels right or the most right. And then you'll start to notice a quality in the voice. One voice makes you feel a little bit more expansive or a lot more expansive. The other voice, when you follow through on that, it makes you feel a little more contracted, a little smaller. And that doesn't feel that great to be contracted. You like feeling expansive. And so if you start to follow the expansive voice more often than the contracted voice, then you'll start to see, oh, okay, I think that's it. I think this is the voice of intuition. But the caveat is the contracted instruction is what everybody else is doing. Okay. So you're going to fit in more if you follow that voice. The expansive voice, there's not a lot of precedent. <laughs> for people doing whatever that voice is telling you to do. So that's going to make you more 
afraid, but excited at the same time, which is what I talk about in my new book is, you know, you asked me about inspiration. How do you define inspiration? It's an idea that you have that makes you both excited and afraid at the same time, afraid in a good way. Like it's kind of that same fear of when you go to a really strong exercise class, you know, it's going to be tough. It's going to test you. It's going to be touch and go at moments. You're going to be dripping in sweat by the end, but you know, you're going to feel amazing when you do it because you will have stretched your potential. So that's kind of what the inspirational voice is going to be telling us to move in that direction. So it's going to be full of uncertainty. But again, in the early days, the uncertainty can be frightening, but then you get accustomed to it. And then you actually start looking forward to it because it becomes this really amazing adventure that helps you understand that, hey, I can do a lot more than I thought I was capable of. And that's pretty amazing. There's so much in that that I want to unpack. I think the first thing to underscore is I love it when you said split testing. I come from a marketing background, so that makes absolute sense to me where you go down one route and look at the results. You know, you listen to one voice. Is this my intuition? Is this my fear? So many people ask me that, as I'm sure they do you. I say the same thing. This almost doesn't matter. Just take some action and you'll get some feedback. It's kind of iterative. And I think so often we just seek this answer, don't we? And I think the thing that I love about connecting with my intuitive voice is that it's totally unique to me. No one can tell me what my intuitive voice will say or what's deeply right for me. No one. And that makes it, like you said, exciting and scary. There's this real dualism that I think sometimes we want it neatly tied up in a bow, don't we? Yeah. And it's more like a machete in the wild. You're out there hacking away. There's no bow happening there. You're getting dirty. You know, you're sweating, you're panting. You don't know which way is up, which way is down. You can't see the forest for the trees. That's what being on your path feels like. People have this cartoonish idea about being on your path. Like it's the yellow brick road in the Wizard of Oz, but no, it's more like you're in the middle of the wild with your canteen, your little water and your machete, and you got to find a water source, you got to find a place to sleep, you know, but you're learning how to read the signs of nature. If you don't know how to do this, then going to a park can be frightening and being in a park for three hours can be frightening. But if you can learn, you know, which trees and the birds, everything is talking to you, everything is sentient. And so being on your path forces you into a level of presence that you won't have if you're in your routine. And so having that level of presence allows you to be able to read the signs of nature and not speaking literally of trees and bushes, but just whatever's around you, there are themes, there are patterns, there are connections that are being played out all around you. And if you're not able to be present within that, you're missing so much rich information about where to position yourself next to take advantage of whatever the beauty or the opportunities or the serendipity is in that moment. So it's a really powerful thing to be on your path because you get comfortable in uncertainty and you have a level of presence in uncertainty, whereas everyone else is yanked out of that present and they're into regret. Why did I do this? Or they're into worry. Oh my God, what's around the corner? But you've been immersed in it for long enough to know that whatever's around the corner, you'll be able to adapt to it. It can't happen as you get older versus when you're a young person and everything is kind of uncertain. Mothers with teenagers, 
they have a heartbreak or whatever, you know, get a rejection or something like that. And it's like the end of the world. And the adult looks at that and goes, well, it'll be okay. You'll have plenty of rejection in your life. You'll get on, you'll move on. There'll be another person coming. It's all okay. But when you're in that age and you don't have enough social maturity to understand that this is not the end of the world, then it makes you afraid of putting yourself out there again. And so that's what I'm talking about with adapting to whatever's around the corner. It's like you have enough experience with it. You know, okay, I lose my job. I'll get another job. It's not a big deal. Can't stay in this apartment. I get another apartment, you know, whatever the change is. And at the end of the day, that's what dictates how much we can thrive in life is not how many resources we have or how much money we have, but the extent to which we can adapt to change, whatever happens. And if we can adapt to change inside, then we'll be able to adapt to change on the outside. And inside, I mean, emotionally and psychologically and and even spiritually. I keep bringing it back to meditation because it's such an important foundational practice for simulating that ability to adapt to the thinking mind. My mind won't stop having these particular thoughts. Okay, well, can you adapt to that? Or are you going to keep resisting it and rejecting it? Because if you can adapt to it, you're essentially exercising your ability to adapt to all change by starting with what's happening in the mind, this thing you can't control, which is the nature of most change is you can't control it. So if you can do it in meditation every day, day in and day out, naturally it's going to bleed over into your experiences outside of meditation. Yeah. And I think what's so fascinating about change is the moment I get to the edge of my comfort zone the resistance is massive. Stephen Pressfield, you mentioned, talks about this a lot and his book is incredible, I think. And I see you've had him on your podcast, which makes me very mm. jealous. <laughs> but I think, you know, when I learned that, it's pretty life-changing. Well, it is life-changing mm-hmm. because I used to think when the resistance and the fear was loudest, that was a sign to retreat. I used to think, ah, this isn't right for me. I feel so afraid. I feel so resistant. Now I know the opposite is true typically that when I feel excited as you said but actually the resistance and the fear is really loud like before I put out my first ever podcast episode I so nearly didn't do it because I was so afraid you know I'd come from this super corporate background and my first guest was Marianne Williamson super spiritual and I was like I just can't do it and then something in me just you know that inspiration just had slightly more courage than fear that's exactly right And I would say the resistance is that borderline between your comfort zone and your growth zone. So I think people get surprised by it sometimes. It's like, no, it doesn't matter how disciplined you are. You will inevitably hit a pocket of resistance and fear. And that's the border patrol (laughs) for your, your rite of passage into the growth zone. You have to move through that. And when you do, then the fear goes away. I'm sure you experience when you launch your podcast, right after you launch, the fear goes away. It doesn't go away completely, but it diminishes and it gets replaced by strategy. Okay, how am I going to get the next week's podcast up? (laughs) Okay, who do I need to call to get them on the podcast? Okay, look, I didn't interview well that last time. This is what I need to do differently the next time. And you start getting inundated with the strategy of it all because you've already taken the leap. You can't unleap. And that's what's beautiful about 
that leap of faith is you only have to do it really one time in that particular endeavor for that particular moment in order to get into the strategy of it and to start to build it out and grow it out and see what you have there. Because that was my experience too. I hesitated to launch my first. I didn't think the quality was great. I didn't love my interviewing style. I could easily list 50 things why I shouldn't launch it. And, you know, there was only really one reason to launch it, which is, well, that's what my intuition is calling me to do. So I'm going to go ahead and do it. You know, I loved how you said such a good kind of cheat sheet in a way that the intuitive voice tends to guide us to do things and the fear voice tends to say not to do things. You notice that intuitive voice. I've noticed this in my life. The things that it tells me to do often make zero sense. Mm-hmm. You experience that like they'll be so left field. Like I got this intuitive nudge to train. It was an amazing story. I don't have time to start, but to train as a Kundalini teacher and it made no sense but actually Mm -hmm. that was the foundation of the work that I do today this would never exist (laughs) without that experience (laughs) and yeah it made no it made no sense like I'd never been to a kundalini class I tell a story in my book knowing where to look it's actually the epilogue of the book where I was walking through Union Square one day in New York at like quarter to 11 at night and my inner voice told me to go into Barnes and Noble, which was 50 meters away from where I happened to be and buy a Rubik's cube. (laughs) And it was closing in 15 minutes. And I went in there and I bought the last Rubik's cube. Now I'm in my forties, right? I don't have a lot of time to sit around playing with Rubik's cubes, but I went online and I was searching for the algorithm for solving a Rubik's cube. And I discovered it and taught myself over the next couple of weeks how to solve a Rubik's Cube. And with everything else I was doing at the time, and all my friends were like, why are you wasting your time with this Rubik's Cube? Doesn't make sense, blah, blah, blah. And in the process of learning how to solve the Rubik's Cube, I realized that it's very similar to the way meditation works in that You solve the base of it first, which is the bottom layer of the three rows, the bottom row. Then you solve the next row and the next row. And so they kind of build upon each other. And meditation is kind of like that. You reestablish your rest foundation first, and then everything else you want comes from that digestion, immunity, hormonal balancing, happiness, et cetera. It all moves back into place after the rest is established. That's your foundation. So I got inspired to do this little video, this video that I posted on YouTube. And it was my first viral YouTube video. (laughs) And a lot of people ended up coming to learn meditation as a result of seeing that video that I did that was inspired by solving the Rubik's Cube. And so the point of that story was Another hallmark of inspiration is it's going to be weird. It's going to be strange, not going to make sense, not even to you sometimes. But if you follow it anyway, it's usually step one to some bigger mission that you won't be able to fully see until you take the first 10 steps. And that's the fun of it. That's part of the fun of it is you get a really amazing story to tell that will continue to inspire people who haven't even been born yet. You know, people generations from now will come across your story of that thing, that leap of faith you took. That's why it's called a leap of faith because you don't know how it's going to turn out. And that's most of the time when you're following your inspiration. What's coming up for me is a question about your experience because 
you know, I've been living this kind of way for a while now, you know, where I trust life. And if I've got a decision to make, I kind of put it out there and I see what comes back to me. And and that's what I use to guide me. But sometimes I forget all that. And maybe this is linked to that inconsistency I was talking to at the start. Sometimes I forget all that and I get stuck in my fear and control again, where I think I have to work this out and I need to control it. And it's such a hard place to live that. And I'm wondering, do you ever slip back into that place of fear and control these days? Or is your practice so consistent that you kind of live from this place most of the time? No, I try to control everything. (laughs) Look, there's a balance. This is not a call to let go of all control. It's to do your best, which is what I'm calling control. I'm doing my best. I'm just making sure that I give everything that I have to something. I can control my schedule, like waking up on a certain time so that I have plenty of time to devote to writing my daily dose of inspiration in the morning. I can control if I meditate or not, which will give me access to maybe more subtle information that I wouldn't be able to access otherwise. I can control how I present myself during the day, which may allow me to be in spaces that I would not be able to be in if I wasn't controlling that to the extent that I'm controlling it just based on the way I look and talk and sound and host and things like that. I can control what I put in my body, how I move my body, how often I move my body, like all these little things, how much I sleep. We are controlling those. Those are not arbitrary choices, right? We are very much in control of all of that. And so the question becomes, what are the key habits that are going to then create the best experiences in the things that I'm not really in control of. So you have sleep, that's a key habit. The extent to which we sleep, the quality of our rest dictates really the quality of our choices in the rest of the day. So that's important. And how we take care of ourselves allows us to either be more or less available to the people that depend on us, which mainly can be our children. And so if we can employ behaviors, habits, that will allow us to rest better and take better care of ourselves, then everything else will kind of sort itself out. So in that sense, long story short, I try to control as much as possible, but then I also have the ability to let go of the attachment to the outcome. If I know that I did the best that I could do, I got up, I meditated, I organized my schedule correctly in consideration of everything that I have going on to be able to give my all. I brush my teeth so I wasn't offending anyone with my breath. I was presentable. I showed up. I followed through. And yet this thing didn't happen in the way that I wanted it to happen. I'm okay with that. I can live with that. Right. But if I woke up late, I didn't meditate. I popped off on somebody, you know, because I was in a bad mood and then the thing didn't happen. Now I'm beating myself up for the next two weeks because I know I could have done better. And like you said, no one knows what's going on inside of you. No one knows what your intuition is saying. That's the beauty of humanity, that we all come to this plane of existence encoded with this special mission path that we don't even know. And it gets incrementally shown to us throughout an entire lifetime. And usually the last piece of the puzzle isn't put in place until just before we transition off into the next plane of existence, whatever that is. So trying to figure it all out is really an exercise in futility 
I think our time is better served than just trying to show up to the moment as much as possible and just being the best version of ourselves as much as possible, whatever that looks like. And we can't compare it to anyone else. All we can compare it to is how we showed up yesterday. I love that you just said that. Trying to figure it all out is futile. You know, my husband has got really into psychedelics recently. I haven't gone down that path, but I said to him after one of his ceremonies, you know, can you put into words what you experienced? And he said, the thing is, though, is that we all think we're all seeking these answers and these enlightenment, but it's like a grain of sand trying to figure out how big the beach is. He's like, you're an (laughs) overthinker. Stop trying to work it out and just show up. And what you said, yeah, what you, well, this is sort of dinner table chat in our house, (laughs) but what you just said just really it really underscored that for me. And I think it's definitely something I have this tendency. I think so many of us do, and I mean mothers and probably humans, you know, to overthink and to try and analyze and figure it out. And that's what I mean when I say control. I have this tendency to want to try and control my environment to feel safe. You know, it's a kind of old coping thing for me, something I did way back when. And yet I know that kind of when I can do a lot of what you've spoken about this afternoon is just a bit more of that trust in things that I can't control, the ease and life just flows from such a different place. So thank you for underscoring all of that for me. It's been super powerful. Yeah. I think, you know, like you said earlier in the conversation, like some people just, their best is maybe not where they necessarily want to be on that particular day, but it's the best that they can do in that particular day. And that's what we all do. So it's a progression. What are you still working on? What are you oh, progressing wow. to? You know, honestly, I'm, I'm in it with everybody else, trying to practice letting go more and trusting more. I may be operating at a slightly different level than a lot of people who haven't been doing as much dedicated inner work, but it's still the same principles of letting go and trusting and being present. There's no absolute presence, there's a spectrum of presence. And so I may be able to be 70% present to my life. Whereas 10 years ago, I was only 60% present. And, you know, when I was a teenager, I was, was probably only 20% present. And so I'm just trying to be more present. We're all on that spectrum, right? So if you're in a human body, you're on that spectrum somewhere. (laughs) And the work is to continue. I would say that one thing I am very clear about is that I, I'm on a, a mission to help people, to leave people inspired, whereas maybe before I wasn't clear about that. And so that's why I want to be more present. It allows me to do what I'm doing a lot more efficiently. And if I'm getting drunk on the weekends and all that, I can't show up for my mission as efficiently as I would like to. That gives me purpose of why I exercise, why I maintain my health, and do all the habits related to that is so that I can write and I can speak and I can show up because otherwise if I'm laying around sick and recovering and working with a shoddy immune system, I'm not able to do what I'm here to do. And that breeds frustration and discontent. And so I think once we get clear about, again, the service oriented role in life and if mothers are, again, can be really good at this, But there's also that balance. You don't want to sacrifice yourself too much. 
you have to make the time to take care of yourself. I know this is a big conversation now with self-care. It's not a selfish act to take care of yourself because it allows you to be more present with those who you truly love and care about, which are your children and your family and your community. And so taking that little time away, even if it's just 10 or 15 minutes in the closet, in the bathroom to close your eyes and just get present to whatever's happening in your consciousness. It's like investing in Apple stock back in the 1980s. <laughs> you know, it may be expensive now, the time cost, but the dividends, they're going to make you a billionaire in time. You'll become a time billionaire down the line, which means you don't have that same angst and sense of worry and oh, I'm not, there's not enough. You'll be able to relax a lot more as you're doing the things that you're you're naturally doing it's so linked and cyclical because you know some of the mothers that I work with they'll be in this pattern of overgiving, right ignoring themselves Mm -hmm. and at the end of the day often collapsing into too much tv or food they know alcohol alcohol, food they know makes them feel bad and it's so linked that and it's Mm -hmm. quite counterintuitive in so many ways that we have to fill up our own fuel tank in order to be able to have passengers in our car you know but it's easy to get in that spiral and that place of overgiving and then collapsing overgive and collapse and I think it's such a powerful thing to hear someone like you you know someone who really you know with your meditation practice and the work that you do to hear someone like you that underscore that for me and the listeners is really powerful you know, that we have to make ourselves well in order for our mission. And for so many of us, you know, I know, sure, I have my work, but my real mission is to be the most present mother that I can be. Yeah. And it applies to fathers, you know, any caregiver. That's why the flight attendants have to say it over and over and over. Put the oxygen mask on yourself first, because they know that our tendency is to want to help everybody else first. So we have to be reminded of that thousands and thousands of times that if you try to do that, if you try to help everybody else first, you're going to become a liability. And I know no mother wants their children seeing them as a liability later on in life because they didn't take care of themselves. Like everybody wants to thrive and to be there for one another. And I know mothers want to have that more than anyone else. You don't want your kids having to be burdened by you because you didn't take care of yourself down the line. It requires lots and lots of reminders to do that. And it's different for everybody. Again, there's not a one size fits all way to do this. For one person, it may just be take, make sure you get your bath in every night. You know, you have your bath. Someone else, make sure you take your daily walk. Someone else, make sure you meditate. Someone else, make sure you eat properly. Eat something nutritious. Some of this requires a little bit of pre-planning and whatnot. But, you know, if we cut down on the social media time, we can cut back a little bit on the television time. We can cut back a little bit on the time we're not recovering from binge watching, drinking, eating, whatever. Then we'll find the time in there. We just have to be a little bit diligent about it and a little bit persistent about it. And it doesn't have to happen this week. This may be a year long process where incrementally you're finding one minute, two minutes, next month, three minutes five minutes, next month, seven minutes, eight minutes, like that. Thin edge of the wedge, as a friend of mine used to say. Yeah, I love that. And that's what I've taken from this whole conversation, you know, is 
it's in the inches. It's the small things. Yeah. It's the small, it's the small things. things. And I think our egos love us to think that it's the big things and there's this one answer mm-hmm. and it's the silver bullet. And my experience, and I love that about your work, and the book is just full of stories like that, that it's in those kind of little, little wins. So I always ask the same question at the end of every episode, which is light. If you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I would say inspiration to follow your heart. And that's essentially what my book is is for, is to inspire anyone who has it to follow their heart. Because I I know the world would be a better place if more people did that. And children, you know, you're the example for your children to do that as well. And you're showing them that it's important to do that. You know, you've moving in the direction of uncertainty because something in your heart is telling you to do that. I think that's an important thing to model for young people as well. Children do that naturally, but we basically train them out of that and we make them try to control everything. We need to do that differently. We need to remind them that actually what you're doing is actually that's the right thing to do. Keep exploring, keep being curious, keep asking those questions, keep following your inspiration. They teach us so much of what we've talked about, right? About doing things that don't make sense, asking those random questions that lead to somewhere There's, you know, I just, I'm in awe of my girls and I really try and nurture that in them because it brings it back to me, right? I get to then kind of witness them doing it and it's cyclical. Thank you so much. It's such a beautiful conversation and I know that people are going to take so much from it so thank you for your time yeah this is awesome I don't oftentimes get to speak directly to mothers and so this is a first for me so thank you for facilitating this opportunity So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists. And we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time.